0: The Shakers have a saying, which is on enough pillows and wall hangings that you might know it, hands to work and hearts to God. It's how they structured their life, a religious sect that is almost now uh, extinct. So the phrase in the bulletin that you have, hands to work, is what I called these stories that we have today from people who said yes when I found out on Tuesday that Vince had COVID and I was supposed to have a weekend off from preaching. (laughs) And I could not be more grateful um, that these folks are going to share stories of putting their faith and commitments into action. And uh, here's my story, or a story, that I couldn't keep from telling you. In May of 1967, the front page of the New York Times ran a little article announcing the formation of the clergy consultation service. It was a group of 21 clergy people, ministers and rabbis, who were available for abortion advice. logistics. Reverend Howard Moody was the senior minister at Manhattan's Judson Memorial Church and he traveled the country having private conversations with pastors in their homes and church basements and he pulled together a coalition. At the end of that first year there were about 1400 members of an underground clergy network. There was a phone number to call, a phone that was answered by a recording of a woman's voice. She listed clergy, their locations, and how to reach them. And then once you, pregnant, were sitting in a rabbi or a pastor's office, they would ask what you wanted to do. If the answer was abortion, they would help you get one safely. I had never heard this story until a few years ago. I'd hazard a guess that most people haven't, although maybe not in this room. Do y'all know this story about the clergy consultation service? Yeah. I mean, truly, I found out about it very recently. What people know about the church when it comes to reproductive rights, or better, a new phrase that I learned this week, reproductive dignity, is that the church is against it. And we are not against it just intellectually or spiritually, but we are willing to work with time and energy to travel to clinics and to use our lungs to yell at people trying to get health care and to print and carry large images of fetuses trying to scare and shame. What people know is that the church has not historically supported what used to be called unwed mothers. In Ireland, the church ran a kind of prison workhouse for pregnant young women until 1998. I was in Boston the year the news of the clergy abuse scandal broke. That year, I went to the famous Famous, Southie, St. Patrick's Day parade, South Boston, full of Irish Catholic people. It was just months after 9-11, and when a group of New York firefighters marched through, mostly visibly hammered, the crowd fell into a reverent silence. On the other hand, when a small contingent of anti-choice folks passed by carrying those giant images of fetuses, the crowd also was quiet, but tense, totally quiet except for one very drunk woman in green high heels and ankle socks. She stepped out from the crowd on the opposite side of the street from where I was and yelled, keep on moving! Keep on moving! Nobody told her to be quiet. I heard a man behind me say to his companion, they've been telling me for years what to do. I've been giving them money And they've been doing this? No question what he was talking about. In the clergy consultation service was a university chaplain in St. Louis, Reverend William Kirby, who estimates that he personally helped 3,000 women. They got on a morning flight to New York because lawyers had advised that it was harder to prosecute out-of-state procedures, and they were back in their dorms by nightfall. Arlene Carmen was a church administrator who went to doctors who offered abortion. She posed as a pregnant client and assessed the place for everything from sterile instruments to kind staff. She sometimes waited until she was in the stirrups to reveal her identity and purpose. And other women did the same. Reverend Barbara Gerlach, whose friend had gotten a back-alley abortion from a man who wore a mask from the moment he met her at the door through the entire procedure, Reverend Gerlach entered seminary in 1968. By the time she was ordained, she could help women go to New York State for legal abortions. We had pastoral confidentiality, she said. We could talk to women in a way that our conversations were privileged. And I thought, well, this is something I can do. I can help women. Congregations pitched in to defray costs of travel and treatment. Clergy used their discretionary funds to help. The consultation service got big enough, up to 3,000 clergy by some counts that they had economic leverage and convinced providers to keep costs low or even waive fees. When Vince and I were installed as pastors here four and a half years ago now, our friend Reverend Katie Hayes preached that service. She likes to talk about this Acts 2 passage that we read as a kind of gold standard for being church. Like, yeah, yeah, the part's about sharing meals together and selling possessions and giving to anybody who has needs and worshiping together and breaking bread. But the part Katie focuses on as a way to measure how her congregation is doing is that those people in the honeymoon phase of the church had the good will of all the people because of how they lived and how they took care of each other and took care of others. People heard about them, Heard about them and knew their story and thought, that sounds good. They sound good. And I am so grateful for this congregation. So grateful that when I talk about us to people who don't know us, I can name the work of our hands, the work of your hands. And people say, without reservation, that sounds good. And I can say, it is. Will you please welcome your next storyteller, John Magallanes? All right,
1: mic check. All right, Uh, I'm a I'm a personal trainer. I actually train Rebecca. And I, and uh, Rebecca's mentioned this. I felt that I had two types of clients, the clients that I had to get behind and help push, and the clients I had to get in front of and help slow down because they were doing too much, going too fast, or wouldn't let themselves rest. And uh, apparently, Rebecca is the only one who couldn't have guessed she was the latter of the two. I felt this way because I could only imagine myself using my hands to help people in one way or the other getting in front or behind I didn't really know where my true strengths were until one of my coworkers, Jim was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease Jim was actually the owner of some of the gyms I worked at they were Jim's gyms and one day he told me if I wanted asked me if I wanted to see a video. And I said yes, because I didn't want to be working at the time. <laughs> and he showed me this video of people training people who have Parkinson's disease in boxing because it just so happens that boxers train what happens to atrophy and Parkinson's. You work on balance, you work on reach, you work on Breathing. On top of that, they taught people how to fall correctly, worked on hand dexterity. They added things everybody loved icebreakers. Lots of icebreakers. <laughs> Jim recreated that program and brought it here to Chicago, and I was one of the first coaches I was in each class, and the boxers were seeing benefits. One of our fighters, Earl, the first day he walked in, he was in a walker. And then one day, he walked in with just a cane. And one day, he was strong enough to get over that threshold without either. And like all good nonprofits, we kind of lived and died by our first big grant and had to do really hard budget cuts. And it wasn't long before I was teaching a lot of those classes alone. Actually, I was all the classes I was teaching, I was by myself now and it was really important to me that we didn't lose the quality of the class, so I was working harder, I was jumping more, I was contorting my hands in any way I needed to to help their body get in the right position, and I was shouting icebreakers at the top of my lungs. And it wasn't long before my body started to give out, and I was losing my voice on a weekly basis. I had to start taking muscle relaxers for my back and I developed tendinitis in both of my arms and sometimes it was so bad I couldn't even hold my coffee cup in the morning and I really needed that coffee. One day after class I was sitting down because I was too tired to move the equipment and I started to notice all the laughter around me. And I started listening to the conversations about medications and favorite neurologists and glory days at Syracuse Lacrosse. I started seeing the younger boxers helping the older boxers move around and older boxers helping the younger boxers know that it's not so scary at the end of this, especially if you have the right people in your corner. I realized that there was a lot of physical benefits to that 60-minute class, but the real magic was happening the 15 minutes before and the 15 minutes after. They were able to be students and teachers and fight a disease together that often feels lonely and scary together. They taught me that my strength wasn't only behind pushing or in front slowing them down and helping them recover, but using my hands by their side, holding space for them, and being ready to sit down and listen.
0: so much, John, please welcome your next and last storyteller, Paul Manzella.
2: I spent my entire working life behind a desk in corporate America, but I've always considered myself as kind of a handyman. My earliest recollection of liking handyman work was when I was 16 years old in the town where I grew up called Westfield, which was a Mayberry-like town in central New Jersey. Earlier that year, my parents had a screened-in porch converted to a family room and wanted a deck off the back. So in the summer of 1976, my dad and I embarked on a construction project that would take the majority of my summer break
0: you close around here because the folks online can't
2: hear you. This is my bad. <laughs> okay. Good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the plan was for a 400 square foot L-shaped deck with benches built into the railing and stairs down to the backyard. After bringing home the wood in the family, room, in the family station wagon, we set it up on sawhorses in the garage. The idea was to stain it beforehand so we didn't have to climb under the deck once it was finished. So he piled the unfinished wood on one side of the garage and moved it to the other side once it was stained. It must have gotten a little carried away because at one point, a sawhorse collapsed under the weight of the wood, splashing an entire can of redwood stain all over the garage. This is the first time I heard my dad swear, and I remember that our garage looked like a murder scene for years to come. (laughs) So we also had to build the posts to support the deck. The posts were made of a stack of cinder blocks set two by two. I was given the responsibility of digging, hand-digging six three-foot hole, three deep holes and placing the lower footings. That was the most physical labor I had done up until that point in my life. Thinking back, it wasn't the work itself that felt satisfying, but the time I spent with my dad, learning new skills, and the satisfaction of making something with my hands. Over the years, I've taken on various home improvement projects and repair projects, including plumbing, some light electrical, painting, and basic carpentry. If something breaks in the house, Mayor will look at me and say, ooh, another project for you. So you may ask, how does this connect with my faith? If you're familiar with the Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, my love language is acts of service. This is true in my personal relationships, as well as how I live my faith. I believe God gave me a heart for service and hands to carry it out and as a result I've been able to use my handyman skills to live out my faith in service to others. When my kids were in high school I was able to chaperone one-week work trips sponsored by the church in the Grange. This led to projects like building wheelchair ramps in the mountains of West Virginia, re-roofing a house in Memphis, Tennessee, and building a back porch in rural Virginia. Like the deck building with my dad, it wasn't the work itself that was satisfying. The satisfaction came from service to others and exposing a service model to mostly, the mostly privileged youth that were on the trip. One of the things that attracted me to Bethany was the idea of hands-on faith. One afternoon over a beer, I told Vince I liked handyman work and asked if there was anything around the church that I might be able to help out with. I was thinking like painting a room or cleaning up or something like that. His eyes lit up and he asked me if I would be game on refinishing the church doors. That project and the work we did with Habitat Chicago in the Pullman neighborhood gave me the opportunity to to live my faith by serving members of the Bethany community as well as others in Chicago. Looking to the future, I'm excited to work with some of you and others when we travel to Back Bay Mission this fall to serve the people of Biloxi, Mississippi. Like I said, I am so grateful to God for giving me a heart for service and the hands to help me live my faith.